Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. Our Bible reading today is from Revelation, uh, chapter 2, verse 12 to 28. I'll just give you guys a bit of time to find it in your Bibles. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of um, Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and, those, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. And I will also give that one the morning star. Thanks for reading, Izzy, and I do hope you'll um, keep Revelation 2 open in front of you this morning as we continue our series in the book of Revelation. We're up to week three, um, and again, if you're joining us for the first time, welcome. Um, I know you've been talking to your neighbour a little bit this morning, but I want you to do that again. I've got a little question for you. We're in survey mode, and uh, we're in these seven mini letters that Jesus writes uh, to these seven churches in what's modern-day Turkey today or Asia. And uh, uh, my question to you, my survey question to you is, um, because in these letters, Jesus kind of has often something to commend the churches for, and he often has something to kind of, I guess, criticise or um, give some negative feedback about. 
Um, and so what I want you to do is turn to the person next to you. And if you know a little bit about our church, um, maybe turn to the person next to you. And what would Jesus kind of commend us for, do you think, at City Light Church North Adelaide? What might he kind of provide some constructive feedback on, if you want to be sort of PC about it? Um, or if you've come from another church, maybe you could reflect on your own church that you're visiting kind of from. Anyway, I'll give you like a minute and a half. What's one thing Jesus would commend us for, our church? What was one thing he might say, you could do better here? Um, give them our own survey land. Go, give you a minute and a half. Have a cup. All right, I'll get you to come back together. Potentially that could be a long conversation with your neighbour. Uh, we pray now as we... Um, come before your word and sit under your word. We pray that you, by your spirit, would help us to see, hear, and love Jesus. Um, move in us, uh, Father, comfort those who need comforting, challenge those of us who need uh, challenging, and um, have your way with us, we pray this morning, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Um, just last week, um, I heard from some friends of mine who um, are associated with the organisation Open Doors, um, a group that is um, in the world supporting the persecuted church. Um, I heard from um, some of my friends at Open Doors that a whole bunch of Christian leaders in, um, I'm going to say Asia, just to be general, um, were arrested in a surprising new crackdown across the nation. Uh, most commentators had been saying that things were getting better in this particular region of the world. Sure, there'd been many um, decades of oppression, but they all agreed that things were kind of on the up. Things were kind of getting a little bit better. Um, strikingly, what I've heard is that church leaders in this particular region live each day as if things aren't getting better. Um, they take really strict precautions at every turn so they can keep making Jesus known. Um, so they only meet in closed shops after hours. They meet in barns out in the countryside. Um, and when they communicate by email or text, they do so in a kind of code. They just live in this kind of perpetual state of preparedness. They've been confident that things are generally on the up, getting better, but they live as if things could change in a moment. And now that moment has come, and, and leaders right across this particular nation are working hard to help their people stand firm for the Lord Jesus Christ, to not compromise. Because when the pressure is on, our first instinct, isn't it, is to reduce the dissonance between what we believe and what the world around us expects us to believe, often by changing what we believe, yeah? That's how we cope. And as you know, in this part of the world, there is a very simple path to getting recognition. Um, any church in this particular area can become a registered church. All you need to do is make a few tweaks to how you operate. So you just need to allow your pastor to become a government appointee. Uh, you have to promise to promote nationalist values. You have to promise never to teach the book of Revelation. I kid you not. And you've got to drop the doctrine altogether of Jesus' second coming. And you've got to never evangelize or teach people under 18 years of age in your particular area. No big deal, right? Do all that and you can become a registered church makes our pressures, right, seem kind of puny and sort of insignificant. Yet the temptation is the same, to adjust what we believe, to reduce the dissonance between our beliefs and the world's beliefs 
often by changing what we believe. And it's into this setting, right? Whether it's modern Asia or modern Australia or ancient Turkey that the book of Revelation is written by the Apostle John, who's been exiled by the Roman authorities onto the island of Patmos for holding out the good news of Jesus. And he's writing in the late sort of 90, in the 90s um, in the first century AD to seven churches of Asia, which we know as modern day Turkey. I think I've got a map. Is it coming up? There you go. That's the, the, the churches that John, that John the Apostle is writing to, these seven churches in uh, modern day Turkey. Um, these seven churches, right, um, the people in these seven churches are feeling the pressure to compromise under what is pretty intense Roman opposition and a crackdown to Christianity. And John writes this book of Revelation to comfort those who are kind of weary and fearful, but he also writes to challenge those who are comfortable and tempted to adjust the faith. And as he writes, like the Asian pastors we talked about, he writes in a kind of code. And one of the keys to understanding the book of Revelation is to understand that it's a deliberate code that's being used. The weirdness that kind of comes with this book and is associated with this book over the past 2,000 years is often associated with people who don't read the code. But it's well known that John is using a standard literary genre called apocalyptic, a Jewish style of literature used in anxious times to unveil vital universal truths through coded imagery. Understanding the code means we're more likely to get the point. And as complex as the apocalyptic genre may seem, the point of Revelation, I think, is kind of crystal clear. Um, You could summarize the whole book of Revelation in these two sentences. If the crucified Jesus is the risen and ruling eternal Lord, only his kingdom will remain. So staying true to his ways, even to the point of death, is true victory. There's the summary of Revelation. So whatever rabbit hole like we run down in this particular series, and maybe even today, we just got to anchor ourselves with that. That Jesus is the risen and ruling eternal Lord. Only his kingdom will remain. And so staying true to his ways, even to the point of death, is true victory. Well, last week, if you were here, we studied the first two mini letters of these seven mini letters to the churches in Asia. We looked at the letter to the Ephesians and the letter to the Smyrnans. Today, we look at two more letters uh, in chapter two, the letter to Pergamum and the letter to Thyatira, circled there on the screen for you. And today, to help us navigate our way through this part of God's word, I have four simple steps, right? And I kid you not, they're just four steps, not like each point with five subpoints underneath them. Just four simple steps. I want to talk about the rationale behind these letters, which is really clear. I want to talk about Jesus' commendation or compliment, the faithfulness of these congregations. I want to talk about a warning that he issues about compromise. And fourthly, the verdict he issues. And then we're going to think about what it might mean for us. So firstly, the rationale. Um, the framework, what's going on here. The the rationale is clear in the way that all seven letters open with a reminder of Jesus' glory and close with a call to be faithful right to the very end. 
It's true of the letters we look at today. Um, have a look, hope you've got open in front of you, Revelation chapter two. The letter to Pergam, Pergamum opens this way, chapter two, verse 12. These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. That's the glory of Jesus. And it closes, verse 17, the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. To the church at Thyatira, he writes, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze, the glory of Jesus, and closes with verse 26, to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. This pattern appears in all seven mini letters and it's really kind of logical, right? If Jesus is who he says he is, it's worth hanging in there with him until the end. If he's not, it's not worth hanging in. But if Jesus is the glorious one, if he is the sin-smashing, death-crushing, heaven-ascending, ruling, reigning, and returning king of the world, then it's totally worth it to stick with Jesus until the very end, come what may. Trusting him, staying true to Jesus, is the true path to victory. So if Jesus bears, right, the ultimate double-edged sword, verse 28, the deadliest weapon of close combat in the Roman army, his path is gonna be the path to victory. Makes sense. If he is the true son of God, verse 18, which was, by the way, a key title that many Roman emperors of the day kind of took for themselves. They love to call themselves the son of God. But if Jesus is the true son of God, staying true to him will mean, verse 26, that we share in his authority over all the nations. And here's one of the keys, right, to reading the book of Revelation. There's tons and tons and tons of militaristic imagery all the way through the book of Revelation. And the militaristic sort of imagery, I think, upsets a whole lot of Christians, right? But the thing is, it's employed in a completely kind of um, subversive way, contrary way, right? So um, when we talk of Jesus having a, a sharp double-edged sword, Jesus says he has that, right? It's, it's not actually a sword, right? Jesus didn't suddenly stop being the turn-the-other-cheek guy and pick up a weapon and start slaying people and slaughtering people. Now, the sword that we're introduced to in chapter one of Revelation comes out of his mouth and is a symbol of his word, yeah. If Jesus, it's Jesus' word that is the weapon. And being victorious, right, that's normally used by the Romans for conquering and subjugating people. Throughout Revelation, it's consistently used to describe the work about, it's, it's, a, it's just describing our suffering for Christ until the end. Suffering is victory. Seems that Revelation uses the language of, revel of empire against the empire, pinches it and turns it on its head. In the end, the true Lord isn't the all-conquering emperor in Rome. It's the guy who was crucified in Jerusalem not so long ago. He's the Lord. And the real victors, right, aren't those who stay true to the imperial propaganda it's those who trust the word of Jesus, take up their cross, and follow him, come what may. That's the rationale. 
And for the most part, right, the Christians living in Pergamon and the Christians living in the city of Thyatira are faithful to this vision. And Jesus says so. Let's pivot to point two, the commendation, the compliment that Jesus says and basically says, you've been faithful. The commendation of Thyatira is pretty straightforward. Have a look at verse 19 of chapter 2. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Like, wow. That sounds like the ideal church. I mean, I would love it if the NCLS data comes back and says, that's us. Love, faith, service, perseverance. You're doing even more now than you used to do. I mean, it doesn't sound like there could be anything wrong with this church, right? We'll see. The commendation to the church at Pergamon is a little bit more complicated. Have a look, verse 3. Uh, verse three, uh, 13 sorry, starts, I know where you live. Doesn't that sound like sort of an assassin in, an, in a movie or something like that? You know, I know where you live and I'm coming after you. You know, doesn't that sound like that? It's not meant to sound like that at all. It's meant to be like, um, it's more comforting than that. Um, it's more like, I, I know what's been happening where you are. And he goes on, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. In the book of Revelation, um, Satan and the devil always, almost always refer to what? To Rome. Rome is the devil. Rome is Satan. It's part of the code. So in what sense does Satan have his throne in the city or town of Pergamum? Great question. Most scholars reckon it's because Pergamum was the first city in all of Asia to build a temple to the emperor in around 27 BC. And right up until the time of this letter, they had a consistent imperial cult going on where you would actually worship the statue of the emperor as a divine being. It's not just a place, right, where you'd go to say your prayers for government leaders like, I don't know, Anthony Albanese or Peter Malinowskis. This is where you would go to praise the emperor, to pray to the emperor as divine. You'd even go there and pour out like wine offerings, just like you would for the gods of the Greek pantheon, the imperial cult. And sadly, some Christian leaders, one of them named Antipas, verse 13, had recently kind of got himself caught up with the cult. Most likely, he'd refused to bow down to the statue of the emperor, and he was publicly executed very recently, which is why it's mentioned. Well, through it all, verse 13, the church at Pergamon remained faithful, even when they saw their own leader executed right before their eyes in the street. They said, no, we're staying true. And Jesus basically says to them, well done. Well done. Well done. Nevertheless, um, both letters have paragraphs starting with nevertheless. So it's important to look at the problems that are also in these two cities. And at both, the problem is compromise. So my third point, the problem, which is compromise. Some in these fine churches were compromising with false teachers 
who are variously called by code names Balaam, Balak, Jezebel, and Nicolaitans. Do you see that verse 14? Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak the to, to, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Balaam is just an Old Testament character. Um, the false teacher's name in the city of Pergamum wasn't Balaam. Uh, this is just straight out of Numbers chapter 22. And Jesus expects you and I to kind of know this, right? You're meant to get the code. And Balaam, uh, if you know, was a kind of half prophet, half sorcerer, who was employed by the king of Moab, um, Balak, to entice God's people, the Israelites, to commit sexual immorality and idol worship. And if you read Numbers 22, 23, and 24, you'll see that he kind of pulled it off. But here it's just code for some pagan teacher in the city of Pergamon who's encouraging Christians to participate in pagan festivals. More on that in a minute. The Nicolaitans, right, verse 15, likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. We talked a little bit about this last week. Most scholars think the grammar here means that um, these are actually the same people, not an additional kind of dodgy bunch, but now they're called the Nicolaitans. Either it's what they call themselves or it's a backhander from Jesus. The word Nicolaitans just means victory, like Nike. That's what Nike means, victory, the victory team. You know, so some of them are probably saying, you know, we're the victorious Christians in Pergamon. Or maybe they're just the so-called victory team, but they're not victorious. That's Pergamon. Here's Thyatira's false teaching. Have a look, verse 20. Nevertheless, I have this against you, Thyatirans. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Again, Jezebel is just someone straight out of the Old Testament again, right? First and second Kings. She's the wife of King Ahab. She's a pagan. She leads Israel to worship the Baals instead of the true and living God, Yahweh. And she kills the prophets. And if you know your Bible really well, right? You know the famous prophet Elijah? Like he's like the last one standing and he's running for his life away from Jezebel in fear of her. In Revelation, it's just code for a, some woman teacher in Thyatira. Yeah? Let me be very clear at this point. The fact that she's a woman is not the issue, right? The New Testament is very comfortable with female prophets. Acts 21, 1 Corinthians 11. The problem here is that she taught falsehood. So she's like a Jezebel. And the falsehood is the same. They're saying you can eat food sacrificed to idols and, have, and participate in Roman sexual immorality. So verse 14 makes it really clear. You hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Verse 20, 
Tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now, I know this like food sacrificed to idols bit sounds a bit weird, but the thing we need to kind of understand that in the Roman world, animals were sacrificed in the temples to all manner of gods, and then most of the meat was sent from the temples into the market for sale, like, you know, like Thyatira woolies or Pergamon coals, you know, whatever it might be. Um, They sold blessed meat. But some of the meat was eaten in restaurants that were attached to the temples in honor of the gods. So these were civic banquets central to the function of the society. And so you were meant to go along to these banquets because the gods were the protectors of your city. And so you would go to the banquet in honor of the gods and eat the meat that was sacrificed to idols. It was like a really important civic duty. And because the Romans, right, didn't care what you did with your body, these civic banquets would often turn into drunken orgies. Interestingly, the apostle Peter writes a letter to the same region a few years before this about the same problem. So here's 1 Peter chapter 4. You have spent, he's writing to Christians, you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry, they are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living and they heap abuse on you. They heap abuse on you for not participating, for not joining in, yeah? You can almost hear the logic of the false teachers, can't you? It would go a little bit like this. Look, the civic banquets that we have in this town, they're so important to the stability of our town and the functioning of our society. Look, if we, if we get a name, right, for not turning up for these banquets for the gods, you know, the protectors of our city, what are they going to think of us? They're going to think we're disloyal. They're going to think we're haters. And we don't want to be called haters. Can you hear the false teachers? I know that sounds like a modern thing, but we know from Roman sources, this is exactly what the Romans called Christians. Haters. Tacitus, great Roman historian, when writing about Nero's oppression of Christians in the mid-60s AD, he referred to Christians as haters of humankind. They didn't participate. But the civic argument was very powerful, right? Don't be a hater. Get involved. And whoever this Jezebel person was, this woman was in Thyatira, she goes further than the civic argument in verse 24. We learn that she called her teaching deep secrets. Deep secrets. Verse 24. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. She called what she taught deep secrets. She called it going deeper with Jesus. Jesus calls it Satan's deep secrets. Why? Because it's a blending of Roman religion with the truth of the gospel. And it's called going deeper with Jesus. But Jesus won't stand for it. 
And so the verdict he gives as we pivot to point four is dramatic. The language here is symbolic, but we are to feel the force of it. So verse 21, John writes, I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. What I think is going on here is I think John, the apostle, has kind of written to this Jezebel to say, look, this is where you're going wrong and has called her to kind of change her ways. I wonder as well if this person who's called Jezebel was someone who worked with the apostle John in proclaiming the gospel, but over time she's changed her thinking on things and has drifted away. I think that's what's going on. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. Verse 22, so I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Do notice the parallelism, right, of the imagery, right? She has led people into sexual immorality and so her judgment is called a bed of suffering. And her collaborators are called what? Adulterers. And what happens to them? Well, Jesus says they suffer intensely. And I kid you not, it's probably a reference here to sexually transmitted disease. Well known in the Roman world. And her children, the converts of this movement, they're simply killed. It's imagery. We've got to feel the force of it. The verdict for Pergamon is just as dramatic, but the imagery is just a little bit different. Um, Come back with me to chapter 2, verse 16. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And again, it's symbolic language. This is not an actual sword, right? It's nothing to do with violence. The sword is the gospel, the truth of God's word. It just means that those people living contrary to the gospel are one day going to run into the fact that the gospel is the universal truth. And one day the whole universe will conform to that truth so that everything that doesn't conform to the truth will be overturned. And because that's the case, those who cling to the truth, the gospel, verse 17, get a very different verdict. They get to, verse 17, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious, you know, the one who suffers to the end, I will give some of the hidden manna. And you're going, what is this hidden manna? I think it's actually a metaphorical kind of counterpart to the food offered to idols. They get divine food. Remember the manna provided by God to his people wandering in the wilderness on the way to the promised land? It's kind of the, the picture there. They'll get divine food, nourishment. And they also get a stone. Did you see that? They also get a stone. And this freaks scholars out, the stone. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. There's multiple interpretations of what this particular stone is. Um... The best one I think that we have is that it's like a ticket. Um, Stones were kind of used in this way. They had a code on it. And if you had the right code on the stone and you identified it and the person at the door knew what the code was, you could kind of come in. I think it's just a picture of entering into God's eternal kingdom. 
The letter to Thyatira puts the final verdict this way in verse 26. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter. In other words, those who suffer to the end for the true Lord will reign with the true Lord forever. It's all just picture language for God's final verdict, where evil will be overthrown and everything will be brought into alignment with God's will and the gospel. And if all of this is true, adjusting the faith to fit in with this blip in history and culture, friends, is to put it mildly, stupid. Or to be more sensitive, not very wise. If this is true, if this is the verdict Jesus has pronounced, adjusting the faith to accommodate this little blip in culture and history and time is silly. The question we come to now is what would Jesus write to us? What would Jesus write to us? That's surely the question, right? Because even a church with love and faith and service and perseverance and you know, you're doing more than you even did when you began can have pockets of deep compromise, yeah? I know it's hard to believe, but we can. So we've got to think this through. You know, in Jesus' letter to City Light Church, North Adelaide, would he mention the way some of us have radically changed our views on marriage in a flash? I reckon the changes in our definition of marriage, which we were all asked to comment on and vote on, I think that was one of the greatest recent challenges to Christian faithfulness I think we've had in a long time. Yeah, yes, I am willing to admit that some Christians failed this test of faithfulness massively by amping up hatred and bigotry towards the LGBTIQA plus community. But others failed the test by overturning the clear teaching of scripture about the meaning of marriage. Either because they just outright disagree with the Bible or more typically they phrase it going deeper with Jesus. Yes, the Bible says this, but if you go a bit deeper and go beneath the surface, I'll just leave that with your conscience this morning. And today, we might not have drunken orgies as part of acceptable culture. I think that's true, unless I'm completely out of touch with reality. But we more than make it up, make up for it, right? With, with apps like, I don't know, like Tinder, hookup apps. Over three million Australians are on Tinder. We're the number one, number one players on Tinder in the world. And then there's the 24 7, 365 days a year orgy called internet porn. And if we're accessing this stuff, we've got to wonder if Jesus might just say to us what he says to Jezebel. Or what would Jesus say about money? I'm not talking about our church finances here. Um, please put that out of your mind. 
But we'll see this next week. Jesus kind of castigates the church at Laodicea down the road for their wealth and their opulence and for trusting in material comforts. And I wonder if the Lord might write to us here in North Adelaide and rebuke us perhaps for the way we do this sometimes. You know, this, is, this is how the awesome inner north evangelical Christian theology around money goes. Here's the quote. Of course, the Lord really wants our hearts, not our money. Which is really just a cool way of saying Jesus isn't having any of my money. I wish I had a dollar for every time I've heard that little theological ditty. But I genuinely wonder if money actually is our food sacrifice to idols. It's the way we most consistently compromise our Christian faith in order to fit in. Surely if Jesus doesn't have much access to the outgoings of our personal finances, he probably isn't much in our hearts. Now, of course, the problem of raising specific examples like this is that there are some people in the room I'm imagining going, phew, so glad Jacko didn't raise my issue. Or worse, or worse, you're thinking, I'm glad Jacko said that because the person over there really needed to hear that. That's probably more me, actually. When obviously this applies to all of us. The temptation is for all of us Christians, right? Whether in ancient Rome or in Asia or right here in Adelaide, in an increasingly hostile world, is to try and reduce the dissonance between what we believe and what the world says is okay by changing what we believe. And how we respond in those moments of dissonance really, dissonance really tells us what we believe. Because let me put it like this, if Christ is the eternal unchanging truth, we would expect that his ways and his word would contradict every human culture at some point because culture is always in flux, sometimes coinciding with Jesus, sometimes the polar opposite of Jesus. So really the only thing we need to determine is, is the truth of Jesus the eternal truth? You know, it's lovely, isn't it, when, when the truth of Christ coincides with culture. I love those moments. But you can't tell in those moments, right, if it, is it Jesus I believe in or is it the culture that I believe in? It's in the moments of dissonance where there is a contradiction between Jesus and the world that tell us what we really believe. That's when you know who you think holds the double-edged sword. The culture or Christ? Who is the son of God? The emperor or is it Jesus? So I close this morning by saying what I know Jesus wants me to say. Repent. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. Let's pray. So Lord, we this morning surrender to you. We ask Lord that you would speak to us, 
I speak to us this morning individually and as a church. Give us such clarity of thought, such soft hearts, that we would cling to the word of Christ above culture. And Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work even now comforting those who are weary and fearful and that your spirit would be moving in us to call us and cause us to repent and to turn back to Christ. So Father, we pray that you'd help us to be more like Jesus. We ask this in the name of Jesus, the one who was crucified who has risen, who now reigns and will indeed return. And we ask it in Jesus' name and we are all God's people said. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church, North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.